As we turn our attention to God's word, I'll say this. Music albums frequently have a title track. So which is, you know, so an artist or a band, they draw the title of their album from a certain track, a certain song on that album. So uh, the title of the Beatles uh, album, Let It Be, 1970, uh, the key song from that album was Let It Be, the title track. So I'm not sure we've mentioned that this summer, but the title for our sermon series for First and Second Thessalonians has been When the Trumpet Sounds. So when the email goes out and there's a little graphic or on Facebook or wherever that is, that graphic that says, says When the Trumpet Sounds, which also gave the title for this week's sermon because it's this week's sermon passage where we draw that language uh, from Paul's statement where he says that the glorious return of Jesus is going to be announced loudly with a military cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. So let's read this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 13 to 18. It will be on the screen. At least it will be on this screen. We're having some issues. We'll figure it out. Please just, uh, if it cuts out, know that we're going to be working on it. But if you have a Bible, you can follow along in your lap or on the screen. Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus wrote this to the church in Thessalonica. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me as we begin to study it. Heavenly Father, we sang earlier in the worship service that there is a day when you will come with shouts of acclamation. And that will be a joyful day for your people. A day where we, in a fullest of senses, we can proclaim how great you are. Lord, I pray that as we study what that day will be like, that same joy would infuse our hearts even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, sometimes we want to know how a story ends, while other times we don't. So when people were watching over the last few years, there's something, what were there, 20 Marvel movies? (laughs) Something like that? Um, It seemed like, I was kind of an outsider to this, that most of those people didn't want to know how Avengers Endgame ended until they saw it. 
And we're a little disappointed when a few spoilers leaked out. I sometimes tease my wife about skipping prefaces in books. And uh, she wasn't too happy with me when she was reading a classic Russian novel and some scholar gave away the ending, which was my fault. (laughs) Um, On Friday afternoon, I wasn't too happy either. I was riding my bike down Jonestown Road and uh, I stopped at a red light. So there's kind of, it's a busy road, I know, and I was trying to go and then get off of it. But I'm there at that huge interchange where there's Target and Olive Garden and all of that. And uh, I'm on my bike, and some other guy who's on a bike, he looked like he was just kind of commuting. And he says, are you watching the tour? Shorthand for the cycling race that's going on in France right now, the Tour de France. And I said, yes, I've watched the first 18 stages, but I don't know what's happened yet today which he took as an invitation to blurt out what happened. And I'm watching like this unfold, like, like as though I'm watching this in a movie of myself, and I feel it going in slow-mo, and like there's no way I can pull it back from him giving away the answer, which was quite the ending of something that hadn't, I hadn't seen in 20 years of watching the Tour de France. Uh, it ever happened that way, so I was a little disappointed. By the way, this morning, it's probably finishing right now, stage 21. I, have, I almost never wear a tie. This little tie has bikes on it. Um, so if, on my fo- if you check out during this sermon and look up what's happening in France and tell me after the service, I will rebuke you like an Old Testament prophet. <laughs> like I will, I will have props, illustrations, so don't do that. And, and yesterday, I'm still two stages behind. Anyway. Other times, we do, however, want to know how a story ends, like when health is fragile. If we could know how the ending, if we could know that the ending was positive, we would want to know that along the way. When we're not talking about entertainment, so novels or movies or sports, Sports, but when with serious life concerns, if the outcome is going to be good, we want to know that before it happens. Because it influences things along the way. Paul, in this passage, is trying to give us that kind of knowledge. The knowledge he gives is to produce hope in those who are struggling. The knowledge about who Christ is and what he has done for us, and what he will do for believers when he comes again, is intended to give us hope. Knowledge of the encouraging future for every Christian should give us hope now. The opposite is also implied. That the lack of knowledge, that is what Paul calls in verse 13, to be, quote, uninformed. So to not have knowledge is to not have hope. Or at least at a minimum is to be confused or anxious unnecessarily. Have knowledge is to have hope. To lack knowledge is to lack hope. This is why Paul begins this section saying that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. He cares about them. And he wants to encourage these Christians, and I believe encourage us with the words of this passage. And so if you and I are to leave this passage, or excuse me, to leave this service encouraged with the words of this passage, the first thing we need to do is understand what the passage teaches. So if you recall, the context of the letter that Paul, of writing to this church in Thessalonica, is that he had taught them about the Christian faith. 
And they were changed. Gloriously, miraculously. But due to persecution, Paul's evangelism, his discipleship, so, so the kind of the inroads of explaining the Christian faith and his discipleship, the outworking of that Christian faith in their lives, being pressed into every detail of life. So that evangelism and that discipleship ministry was cut short because of persecution. And so a few weeks ago when we were teaching through 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, we read that Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus were praying night and day, it said, that they could see the Thessalonians face-to-face to, quote, supply what is lacking in their faith. Part of what was lacking was instruction about holiness, excuse me, which Pastor Ben so helpfully taught about last week in his sermon. In this week's passage, though we see that they knew some things about the return of Christ, they also lacked understanding about what the return of Christ meant for those Christians who had died. Now that may sound obscure, but it's not. It's even possible, I would say, perhaps likely, that between Paul's first visit and between the recon visit that Paul sent Timothy on in chapter 3 to then come back with information about how they were doing in their faith, between those two visits, it would seem possible, again, perhaps likely, that some of those Christians in that church had, in fact, died. In the wake of these deaths, the young Christians who remained didn't know what to think. That's where we pick up verse 13. Look at it again. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So a few things to point out. First, Paul uses the language of asleep. He's going to use that language several times in this passage. It's actually common in the New Testament to speak of a Christian dying as falling asleep. Jesus spoke this way in the Gospels, as did the Gospel writer Matthew. Luke did the same. Peter and Paul uses it here in this passage and in other places in letters he wrote. At the end of the sermon, we'll come back to what's encouraging about Describing the Christian's death as a metaphor, the metaphor of sleep. But for now, let me mention one other thing about verse 13. It's that line about grief. Paul says that if they become informed, so to say it it positively, if they become informed, then they won't grieve as others do who have no hope. Two things are implied. First, Christians grieve. Christians grieve. Sometimes the triumphant, celebratory themes of Christianity, and they're there, can be misunderstood and over-implied to make it seem that if Christians are grieving, then they're doing it wrongly. But it's not wrong. Christians grieve. We grieve our own sin. And our lack of Christ-likeness. We grieve the brokenness and injustice in the world. We're not glib. And we grieve when people we die, or people we love die. Christians grieve. But, says Paul, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. That's the other thing to notice. 
If the grave is the end of everything, then there is no hope. But if for the believer in Christ, the grave is not the end of everything, but rather the beginning of the best, then our grief in this life should be tempered with hope. There is hope in Christianity that does not exist elsewhere. One of the pastor elders of our church a week and a half ago or so, emailed all the rest of us pastor elders about how he was doing. His father had passed away. And he was updating us as we'd been praying for him and his family. I asked him permission, which he gave me, to read a portion of the email he sent us. It begins like this. Hey gang, I'm back in Pennsylvania. Thank you for the prayers. This weekend was rough and it's about to get rougher. And I'm pulling out a few sentences. But then he says, I felt the Lord's protection at the mosque and the cemetery. So this elder of ours, though he grew up a Muslim, now Christian, continues this way. He says, I felt like an outsider, which I was more than happy to be. I've been to several Muslim funerals, he writes, buried two family members, and I can tell you the natural conclusion of Islam is hopelessness, uncertainty, and joylessness. Thank you again for the prayers. I know in a pluralistic world where every path or no path at all, supposedly leaves to God a glad reception by God, that this email is electric. He didn't write it to be that way. Just an update. But what do you think about these things? Is there hope outside of the gospel of Christ? I don't know what you think But I want to point out that Paul distinguishes the hope of Christians about other Christians who have died from the hopelessness found elsewhere. There is something about Christianity that gives Christians hope for other Christians. And now what Paul goes on to do in these next few verses is specifically explain some of what that hope is and what it means for the return of Jesus. Look again at verses 14 and 15. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you. So he's declaring it. He's not sheepish. He's not afraid of declaring this. He's he's boldly proclaiming. He's heralding it. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of our Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those sentences are a mouthful, (laughs) aren't they? But a paraphrase of what Paul says might go something like this. I know you're worried and grieving about the members of your church who have died. Yes, grieve. But also know that one day Jesus is coming back 
And just as Jesus was raised to life, so everyone who has fallen asleep as a Christian will be raised to life again. And every Christian who remained alive before the coming of the Lord will be alive with every Christian who was previously dead but is now alive so that there will be a reunion. And at that reunion, we will forever be with the Lord. That's the paraphrase. Look at verses 16 and 17. He gives even more detail about this return. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. I take this to be a military cry of command. With the voice of an archangel. With the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, so those who are left alive, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that we will always be with the Lord. Now, one issue that tends to come up with this passage is the so-called rapture. I've been thinking about it since April, since Jason and I prayed, prayerfully chose First and Second Thessalonians, and now it's here. Some of you pulled me aside before service and said, I know what passage we have this week. In our church denomination, we do not take an official position on every detail related to to the end times, what Christians sometimes call eschatology. It's the study of the end times. But we do take official positions on some things, several things. So for example, that Jesus is coming back and that Jesus, when he comes back, is not just coming back spiritually. That's an official position of our church. So what I mean by that is, Jesus is actually coming back. He's not just coming back in the hearts of his believers as we trust in him. And so he's back, but just in our hearts. Like our church, our church denomination, all of our leadership believes he's actually coming back. That's an official position. But other details of Christ's return, our denomination leaves to individual churches, individual pastors, and individual members to wrestle with. I tend to like that view, tend to like that approach, because it means as a church we get to practice unity when we don't have uniformity. We get to practice that. That's a nice word, right? (laughs) We get to practice. What I mean is that we get to be a church that is unified on the belief that Jesus will return, but we don't have all the details figured out about his return, at least as a church. So with respect to the rapture, I suspect our church divides into about three probably equal categories. About one-third of you, let's guess, believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. About one-third of you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And about another third of you have no idea what a pre-tribulation rapture is. Right? I don't know. Now, I don't need your sympathy, but it does make it kind of difficult to preach. So let me try to bring some clarity for about four minutes. (laughs) I'll just try and solve something here that Christians have been talking about for 2,000 years in four minutes. 
And if this four minutes is unhelpful to you, then you can mentally, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pray that this four minutes is <laughs> forgotten and that the other 30 are remembered. So the tribulation, as Christians talk about it, refers to an intense time before the end of time. Okay. Tribulation, intense time before the end of time. So in the tribulation, there are conversions to Christ and there are apostasies from Christ. There is persecution, there are earthquakes, there are other intense experiences, shall we say. Some Christians believe that before this time of intensity begins, Jesus will come back with a secret return to withdraw his church, his people, from the earth. It's called the rapture. So a pre-tribulation rapture is a before the intense time of struggle, The church is removed in a secret return, a secret withdrawing, a rapture, if you will. Others, uh, so some people believe that, others don't. I don't think it's helpful for me to say I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That is, I don't think it's helpful for me to say I don't believe in a secret withdrawing of the church before the end times. What I think is more helpful to say is that I don't think the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. Now that's me. We get to practice some unity here. Me with you and you with me. Let me give just a few reasons. And this is one of the main, I wouldn't do this ordinarily except it's one of the main passages this comes up. So a few reasons why I said what I just said. First, when you look at the passage, Does it seem like to you what's being described is a secret return or something visible to everyone? So verse 16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. To me that sounds visible, public, big deal, noticeable type of thing. Second reason is I believe Paul is drawing on something that would have been common to his audience that's not so common to us. So when Pastor Ben was preaching last week, I thought very helpfully during his introduction, he talked about the gap that is always at play when we study a biblical passage. So the the gap is the gap of context. So when that gap is small, what's happening in the passage is very much like what's happening in our life. So we read it and we're like, oh, one-to-one right away. It's immediately clear. There are other times where that gap is larger. And so we have to think and slow down and say, okay, what was happening in their context so that when we bring it into our context, we can bring it in in the proper way? So I think that this language of, quote, meeting the Lord in the air, I don't do scare quotes, they're like real quotes, meeting the Lord in the air, that's what the passage says. I think that's referring to a practice that they would have all been familiar with. That is the practice of a dignitary or a returning king from a battle coming back to his city. And that city coming out to meet that dignitary or returning army. When the Eagles won the Super Bowl, there was a party in downtown Philadelphia and then later a parade, right? Some of you, I know, I know we had a few, some people even go attend it. I think it's sort of like that, what Paul's describing here. 
This language here of meeting the Lord in the air mimics this ancient practice that when a king returns, his people go out to greet him. And when Jesus returns, he, his people will greet him in the air. And then they will very quickly return to earth where Jesus will recreate the world to be a place of peace and prosperity. I say that because throughout the New Testament, including First and Second Thessalonians as we get into chapter 5 and then Second Thessalonians chapter 2, what we'll see is that there seems, at least to me, to be one decisive, glorious return of Christ. Not several. Now, we're almost done with this part. But now... Some of you can hear that and wonder, well, like, so if Jesus comes back, we meet him in the air, and then he doesn't take us on into heaven, what's the point? Like, why are we going to come back to earth? I read one scholar who asked that very question, and the way he asked it implied there is no point. Allah, the opposite of what I'm saying. Well, let me ask this. If, If you're an Eagles fan, and... You live in downtown Philly and the parade's going to go by your house. How big a fan are you if you don't come down to the street, right? You got to go down to the street. At a minimum, you got to go stand on your second floor window, open the window and cheer, right? If you're a fan and then you're going to wear your jersey and then after the parade's gone by, you're going to go on with life, but you're going to continue to wear that jersey with a little extra pride, right? Excitement. What does that have to do with anything? I think... This meeting the Lord in the air is a way to celebrate with him his victory. And then it's a returning to the earth and the world in a way that it's different. And here's what I mean. Most of us don't know what it means to live in a fragile city where you send out your brothers, your sons, your fathers off to war. We do this sort of sending and of our daughters. But we don't feel the immediate fragility of our cities because our cities most often are removed from the fighting. That wouldn't have been the case back in the day. When your king and a father and a brother and a son returned from war victorious, you went out to meet them when they returned. And when you came back into the city, rather than just staying outside the city, Or going to another city. When you came back into your own city, nothing was the same. Because the war was won. And all fear was gone. When Jesus told the parable in Matthew 25 about his return, he said that people were looking as on a long way off. And when they see them, they go out to meet them. And then they go back in and celebrate together. The going out is to come back in. So for those reasons and lots of others, I think the return of Jesus that Paul describes here in 1 Thessalonians is a final return, a clear, a visible, fine, once and for all return, not to take his church away, but to lead his church back into the world in a way that it will be different and changed. But whatever you believe about these issues, I would hope that we could be a church that rallies around the big picture that rallies around the return, that it will be glorious and wonderful for believers. And if it is wonderful for believers, then we should do exactly what Paul says to do in verse 18. Look at it with me one more time. Paul writes, Therefore, 
So in light of all that I've been saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. For all the debate over the specifics of Christ's returns, let's not miss the point Paul wanted to emphasize. Don't miss his pastoral aim in these words. God cares so much about local churches who have lost believers they love that God inspired Paul to encourage these young Christians and the young Christians and mature Christians in this church that we can have hope beyond the grave. I think the best way perhaps to end the sermon would be to spend a few minutes reflecting on how this passage encourages me. The joke can be made of pastors that we only work an hour a week. And I'm always like, well, we have two services, though. I at least work two hours a week. But there's a lot of pastoral ministry that's not super difficult. Like, if you're doing pastoral ministry rightly... It should be rigorous. It should involve effort. But most of the time, it's not the hardest thing in the world. Most of the time. But part of pastoral ministry is difficult. Sometimes it's very difficult. Pastoral ministry means moving towards people when they experience the most difficult experiences people can experience. I'll say it like this. You have 10 people shoulder to shoulder standing there and a difficult situation happens to someone else. When everybody else wants to go one step or two steps backwards, pastoral ministry moves forward. One step or maybe two. I have a friend at a church in Philadelphia. We talk once a month on the phone and pray for each other. On a Thursday afternoon, he told me, that the brother of one of the women in his church committed suicide. And John had to take one step, really two steps forward, to point that family to the Christian hope at the end of the story. So, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with what encourages me about this passage? What encourages me about this passage is that when you and I move into the hardest situations... And Christianity is tested to its limits. Christianity has answers that hold. If, as a pastor, I only had a word from the Lord for when the sun was shining in people's lives, I wouldn't know what to do when the dark clouds rolled in, the wind picked up, and the shutters on the house began to shake. Some of the struggles and sin that seem to abide... I mean, there are just some of us have struggles and with sin that seem to abide no matter how much grace and effort we throw at them. And we grieve. Others of us have chronic illnesses that will only be healed when the trumpet sounds. And we grieve. For some of you, perhaps, when you pass away, I will come to your house and I will sit at your kitchen table with those you love. We will grieve. But in all of those cases, and a hundred others, I hope that the Lord will call to mind the truths of this passage so that I can encourage fellow Christians. In our deepest grief, when that grief is over our own brokenness and brokenness over other Christians, there is hope. His name is Jesus. 
Paul writes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. You don't have to be a pastor to encourage in this way. Paul invites, in fact, commands, instructs, charges every Christian to be so in awe of the majesty and power and might and mercy of King Jesus and his future glorious return that in the meantime all of us can offer hope to others. Christian, be encouraged that for those of us who die in Christ, our death is as though we were only taking a nap. For those who die after they have placed their faith in Jesus, The Bible uses this phrase, in Christ, like a hundred times in the New Testament. And what that phrase, to be in Christ through faith, what that means is that your life is so bound up with Christ that your life, the language of Colossians would use, is hidden with God in Christ. So that when God looks at you, what he sees is not your imperfections, but the beauty of Christ. And therefore, what is true of Christ is true of you. So that if Christ has been raised from the dead, God will also raise you from the dead. That if you are in Christ and you die, it can be described as though you were only sleeping. Twice in the Gospels, Jesus referred to death as sleeping. When Jesus spoke of a friend who had died, his friend's name was Lazarus, spoke of Lazarus as though he had sleeping, though he had died. And the disciples pull him aside and they're like, hey, Jesus, that's good. Because if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. Sleep is good. Sleep, you know, if you're sick, take that nap, going to get better, right? And Jesus is like, he's died. (laughs) But I told you he's sleeping so that when we get there and I raise him from the dead, you would know that me raising him from the dead is only as difficult for me as it is for you to wake someone up from a nap. In another story, a little girl had died. And Jesus told his parents she was only sleeping. Everyone in the room laughed at him. Until he took her hand. The hand of that little girl. And said, child, arise. And she woke up. In a world that offers no sturdy hope for life after death, when the trumpet sounds, the Lord will return. Even if you have been buried in the ground for a thousand years, God the Father will raise you like he raised Jesus from the dead. In a world where no medicine, no spiritual guru, no no health regimen can stop your death, Jesus will come with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise. In a world where everything good eventually ends. All our best joys end. All our best experiences end. All our best relationships end. In that kind of world, a world where everything good ends, this passage encourages us that when the trumpet of God sounds, Christians will be with the Lord and other Christians forever. Forever doesn't end. Our best joy, our best experience, and our best relationship does not end in forever. It only gets better. One of my best friends in college was tragically killed. His name was Kyle. Kyle had been climbing 
A mountain when an avalanche was triggered. A wall of snow as long as two football fields came crashing down and killed Kyle instantly. It was two weeks before his wedding. His family asked me to say something at his service. Maria, still picture, close my eyes, I can picture it. Maria sat right there, grieving. And the only thing that made that service possible was that if anyone I'd ever known had ever become a Christian, it was Kyle. (laughs) Jesus changed Kyle. And though I couldn't say it then, as well as I hope I can say it now, my hope on that day for my friend and my hope on this day for all of us is that for all of us who experience brokenness is that when Christianity... is pressed into the most difficult circumstances, the love of God holds and offers a true story of hope. And our death in Christ will end as easily as you and I might wake each other up from a Sunday afternoon nap. Paul writes, encourage each other with these words. That's the aim of this passage. In other words, Paul tells us that he's calling all Christians, not just pastors, to be those who move forward towards brokenness. Will you do so? Will we be a church that does so? Who in your life, in this church or in other contexts in your life, needs you to move towards them. By the grace of God, we must. By the grace of God, we will. I want to pray and invite the worship team to come up and lead us in one more song. Heavenly Father, the Christian life is lived with great tensions. Some people have called the already and not yet. The Christianity is here an awesome part of salvation. And the Jesus has not yet fixed everything part of salvation. And we live between the times. There's a grief in this life. But I pray, Lord, as we sometimes pray at the end of a service, That every day between that day, that great, glorious, wonderful day when our souls shall sing for joy. That all of our grieving would also be tempered with hope. And a hope that would be contagious in a world that needs your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name.